0: All right, if you would, take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts. To the book of Acts, chapter 2 is where we're going to be looking this morning. Also, if you would, take your bulletin, and on the back of the bulletin, at the top is Acts 1-8, a verse that we are memorizing together as a church. And then below that, you'll also see some sermon notes and some things just to guide us through our time looking at the Word. But we're, we're trying as a church to memorize Acts 1-8 together. And if you're having a little bit of trouble, you know, getting it to stick in your mind, I, I have an idea. Just learn it in a different language. If English is giving you trouble, just, just try a different language. And we're going to give you some examples this morning. The reason we're doing this this morning the way we are is because as we read Acts 2 and we see the Spirit coming on the early church there in Acts 2, one of the things that happens is that God's Word, people begin to speak in multiple languages. All these different languages show up. And so we're going to have the opportunity this morning is to hear Acts 1-8 in multiple different languages. So just to get us started, Scott, give us an old-fashioned, let's go with the pulpit mic maybe on this. Give us an old-fashioned English version of Acts eight, so you can get that in your mind, and then we're going to get some different languages. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Acts eight. All, all right, there you go. Now, Maria, give us another option. We'll play Guess This Language. Don't tell them what language it is, even though they probably know. Novo Pauli Chitia Sulu. Kogda svyatoy duh snizidiotino vas. I buty tis vateliami moimi. Snachala v Izrailimie i v Iudeya i Samerii. After them the Karyof zimli. Anybody know what language that is? Russian, yeah. We well, just cuz you knew Maria, but hey, that's all right. So, Maryly Hechos uno ocho, pero cuando el Espíritu Santo venga sobre ustedes, recibirán poder y a ador testimonio de mí en Jerusalén, en toda la región de Judea y de Samaria, y hasta en las partes más ligeras de la tierra. What language? Spanish. All right, Fernanda. Porem quando o Espírito Santo descer sobre vós, vocês receberão poder e serão minhas testemunhas em Jerusalém, em toda a Judeia e Samaria e até nos lugares mais distantes da terra. What language? Portuguese. <laughs> all right, Tyler. Me you. And you will be my à Jérusalem, in all dans la Samarie Jessica, de la terre. What language? All right. Okay, all five of you, come here. Gather around. Now, think about being there at the day of Pentecost. All these different languages coming together at one time. So on the count of three, in whatever language you just read it in, give it to us at one time. Okay, here we go. Maybe kind of, here, circle in just a touch. There we go, there we go. All right, give it to us one 2 3 go <laughs> the Now, if that was happening, you might be tempted to say, are they drunk? What, what is going on here? What is this sound that we're hearing? What, what's happening here? Acts chapter 2. Let's look at it together. We're only going to read verses 1 through 21 starting out, and then, and then we'll look at a few others here in just a minute. Let's start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tons of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. They obviously haven't lived in some of the areas we've lived in. So, uh, but uh, it's only nine in the morning. Verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy... Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Verse 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God, we want as much as possible for our minds to go back to that day of Pentecost, what that would have been like, sounded like, felt like. And then we remember as well that we live in 2014. We live right here on purpose, where you've placed us. And God, we want to see your spirit move. We want to know what it means for you to be at work in our lives and at work in our world. And then God, show us what we should do As a result of that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience where you met someone at a point in life and you knew them at an earlier stage in life? Say you knew someone in elementary or middle school or especially high school. And then you met them at a later point in life and you think, how did that person Get here. You know, maybe they've got a good job, their business is doing well, their family's doing well, and you think, this is not the person I knew then. The person I knew then, they were going to be lucky to make it through life. There was no way they were going to find a job, and now they've made it to this place in life. That might even be your story. Somebody might look at you and think, what is that person doing in church? Because the person I knew Back in the day, there's no way that they would be sitting in church right now, or there's no way that they would care about God's word. How does a person go from that place in life to where they are right now in life? And I think something similar goes on with the story of Pentecost, because remember, Peter and these disciples, these were the same men that as they tried to follow Jesus, they struggled. When he needed them the most, they turned and they ran away, and now they're standing up and they are declaring God's greatness. God has taken them from one place and he's moved them to another place. How does God take a man who is living for himself, who is barely connected to his family, who's going for all the world has to offer, and then he turns and he begins to live fully for the Lord? How does God take a woman who is bitter at life? ...bitter at the world around her... ...fighting for her own rights... ...and begin to turn her into a woman of love... ...and grace and mercy and peace. How do those things happen? And what we find in Acts 2... ...is you can take all of the programs... ...you can take all of the religion... ...you can take all of the ideas you want... ...but the difference maker is always God's spirit. We can pretend to be religious... We can be, pretend to put our lives back, to get back together. But the one thing that matters is when God works in our life by his spirit in a way that we can never manufacture, in a way that we can never make happen, when he takes us at our lowest point, our darkest point, and he says, I'm going to get a hold of your life, and I'm going to move you in a new direction. Anytime God is at work in your life, or anytime God is at work in the world around you, There are always two questions that come up. Write these two questions in your Bible. Stick them in your mind. Every time you open the Bible, every time you look at the world around you, these two questions should come to mind. The first question is, what does it mean? Verse 13, earlier, when all of this was going on, or verse 12 actually. Verse 12, earlier, they they were amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? When you see things going on around you, when you read God's word, when you encounter God, we always have to to ask the question, what does this mean? And then after we get the meaning, here in a few minutes, we're going to get down to verse 37, and the the people who hear the disciples talking, they ask, what should we do? So there are two questions for your life. The first question is, what does this mean? And the second question is, what should I do? So let's look at that first question. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is moving? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is falling? Well, it should make sense to us that the Holy Spirit is coming to work at the beginning of the church. Because if we backed up to Genesis chapter 1, and we looked at the story of creation, guess who's at work in the story of creation? God's Spirit. You think about the beginning of Jesus' life, at his birth, and at his baptism and at the beginning of his ministry, who's at work there? The Holy Spirit's at work there. Now, at the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, we would expect God's Spirit to be the one making this happen. God's Spirit to be the one who was starting this. And it says that there was a powerful wind, a, a sound like a powerful wind coming in. We thought about, and we only thought just a little bit about this, but we thought about putting a couple of huge industrial fans in here. You know, and blowing those really hard to give you a feeling of what it would have been like, but just didn't seem like a good idea. The people on the first row would have just been been taken out. So we went with the languages instead instead of the industrial fans. But there was this wind that was blowing that was showing that God's spirit was moving. Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 37. There's a valley of dry bones. Things are desolate. Nothing's happening. It looks like God has forgotten his people. And it says that God's spirit, God's wind moved, and those bones came to life. The other thing that happens here is it says that pieces of fire, what looked like fire, tons of fire were coming down on the heads of the people. Exodus chapter 3, Moses meets with God, and how does God show up? He shows up in a burning bush, a bush that does not burn up. These tons of fire come on the day of Pentecost and it comes in a way that the people's hair does not catch on fire. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to catch your hair on fire, uh, but, but it's not a good experience and not one that you should ever repeat. And, and so the fire that comes at this point is not a fire that catches them on fire. It's a fire that they know that God's spirit is moving. And then the people begin to speak in multiple languages. Genesis chapter 11 The people are building a tall tower in order to be able to reach to heaven, and they're speaking one language, and God shows up, and what happens? They begin to speak multiple languages. He divides them out, and now at this time of Pentecost, God uses those multiple languages to make his message known. God has been working throughout scripture to show himself to his people so that they would know his might, they would know his power, they would know that only he will get the glory for changing people's lives. And so it comes to this point, and the people see this happening, and they ask, what does this mean? They hear the message in their own language, but even though they understand the words, they don't understand the meaning. And this is something that happens a lot of times in church, and it might even be your story. You understand the words that are being said. You know, you could pick them out in a vocabulary, but you don't understand what they mean. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If we ever use churchy words, or we ever use religious sounding words, and you hear that word and think, I could find it in a dictionary, but I have no clue what it means, ask somebody. Sometimes we feel like when we go to church, part of being in church is hearing words that we don't understand but pretending like we understand them. That's not the point of, of being in church. We need to understand what we're talking about and we're always asking the question, what does this mean? What does God's word mean? What does this action that they're doing in church mean? I want to know who God is. I want to know how he's working in the world. Now there's a reality that happens in the book of Acts that we need to be aware of because this this impacts the way that we do church. There's something called contextualization and it's a big word and I'm going to tell you what it means because that would be very hypocritical not to but it's on the back of of your worship guide on, on the worship notes. Contextualization just means when God's word or God's message is spoken to a group of people, presented to a group of people in such a way that they can actually understand it. And so the people here, they heard God's message, they heard about what God was doing, but they heard it in their native language. They heard it in their heart language, something they could understand. I don't know if you've ever noticed there's this generational gap in communication. You might hear a teenager uh, say something and you think, I have no idea. What, what they say. There, there was this uh, Sprint commercial a few months ago that was out, and these two well-known actors were reading text messages that, that had been sent out by, by these teenage girls with words like cray-cray and, and amazeballs and tosma my goats and, and then the whole idea was adults have no idea what that means. We can use those words but we have no idea what it means. God is all about speaking his message in a language that we can understand. And so when we go out and speak to people, we need to speak about God in a language that they can understand. There's an interesting connection here. A lot of people, and and I'm gonna balance this point out, so give give me a second here. A lot of people really like to read the King James Version of the Bible or the New King James Version. Maybe they grew up with that Bible, they're familiar with it, but some people will say that's the only translation that you can read because this is God's Word. You've got to read this particular translation. One of the problems we run into with the King James Version, though, is some of the words, frankly, I don't have a clue what they mean. You you read the words and you think, what did that say? In the original edition, of the King James Version, there is a preface, there, there's some uh, paragraphs that are written before the Bible begins that were written by the editors of that original version. And they say in that preface that God's word should be communicated afresh to every new generation so that they will be able to understand it. The original editors, the original translators of the King James Version never meant for that version to be the only one that was read. They simply did it because it was something that could be understood by the people then. Every generation needs to hear God's message in a way that they can understand it. But just because they hear those words doesn't mean that they're going to know what they mean. It's one thing to hear the words, it's another to ask, what does this mean? And we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared for someone to say, I was reading the Bible and I read this section and I don't know what it means. Can you explain it to me? That's when all of God's work in your life comes to bear on that particular moment. When your kid walks up to you and they say, or your grandkid walks up and they say, hey, I've been reading my Bible and I read this. Can you tell me what it means? And remember, Your knee-jerk reaction at that point is not, we'll call the pastor, okay? It's okay if you call me. I, I don't mind coming and talking to you about what God's word means, but remember the same Holy Spirit that would be at work in my life at that moment is at work in your life at that moment, and he will lead you to be able to know what God's word means. The reason we learn God's word is so that we will be able to turn around and tell other people what it means, And that's exactly what Peter does here. One of the things that Peter does back in verse 14 is he stands up with the eleven, he raises his voice and he addresses the crowd and he says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk in verse 15. And then in verse 16, he makes an interesting point. He says, this So in other words, what you're seeing happen right now, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And verse 17 says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. What Peter is doing is he is translating this experience for the people. He's saying, when you see the fire and you see the wind and you hear all these different languages... What you're seeing happen is exactly what Joel had prophesied hundreds of years before. And it means that the last days are beginning. It means that God's spirit is coming. And so the first thing we have to know is anytime someone asks us, hey, what's going on in the world? Why are all these things happening? We can tell them God's word said that this was going to happen. And what it means, it means we live in a time of decision. Your time to get right with God, your time to decide to follow the Lord, is right now, not later. You don't have to debate with people about when the world's going to end. You don't have to show them all of these prophecies. You just have to tell someone, now is the time for action. Now is the time to decide if you're going to follow the Lord or not. Right now is the time to do that. And then Peter gets down to verse 21, and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Fellow Israelites, verse 22, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then you'll notice if, if you're looking at a printed copy of the Bible and you get down to verse 25, the font changes again. You get a, it, it looks different in your Bible. It's because Peter is going back again to the Old Testament. Except this time he doesn't go back to Joel. This time he goes back to the book of Psalms. And it says in verse 25, David, so David from the Old Testament about the book of Psalms said, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay." You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. So as Peter is dealing with this question of what does it mean to encounter God? What does it mean for God's spirit to move? He says, these are the last days. If you're going to make a decision for the Lord, now is the time to do it, not later. And then he turns around and says, but, but there's still hope. It's not too late. This Jesus, even though he died on the cross, he has come back to life. And because of that, you have joy, and you have hope, and you have peace, and you have life. And so if someone comes up to you and they say, what's going on in the world? What is the Bible all about? You can say, now's the time to get right with God, not later. Let's talk about it right now to understand what's going on. And then you can say, there is great hope because of Jesus. The quicker you can point someone to Jesus, who he is, what he has done, why he matters, the quicker you can point them to Jesus, the quicker you begin to get them to the source of their hope. And so what Peter does is he draws on the Old Testament. He draws on their experiences and he says, if you want to understand what God's Spirit is doing, if you want to understand what's happening in the world, you have to understand who Jesus is and you have to understand why he matters. And so the people begin to grasp this. They begin to hear who Jesus is and they begin to say in verse 37, if you skip down a little bit, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When someone hears about Jesus, So when someone encounters God's spirit working in their life, there are usually two two responses to that. One is what happened earlier in verse 13. People will say, you're just drunk. You're out of your mind. You're wasting your life on that religious thing when it's not going to do you any good. You're trying to explain it by God. God doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. That's one possible response to people seeing things happen in the world that they don't understand. They begin to mock God, or if they don't mock him, they at least say it's irrelevant. You're wasting your time on that. The second response is, this really does matter. And God really is at work in my life. And I really do need to understand who Jesus is. And when that happens in your life, the natural response is you say, what do I do? What do I need to do? And what does Peter say? Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone is included in this promise. For all whom the Lord our God will call And he tells them in verse 40 to save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So what are you supposed to do when you see God at work in your life? When there's no natural explanation that you should be in church this morning. When there's no natural explanation that you should have any interest in God's word. What do you do? Peter says you repent and you're baptized. In other words, you say, not that I'm sorry for the way that I've lived but I'm sorry for the way that I lived and I'm turning away from that and I'm committing myself fully to the Lord. I'm turning from sin, I'm turning from myself, I'm turning from this world and this generation and I'm giving myself fully to the Lord and I'm going to show people that by being baptized. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself living in sin or living for yourself, or you're at the point of brokenness and you're just thinking, "What what's going on in my life? What does this mean? What do I need to do? God's word is very clear. You repent and you follow him fully. And for some of you, that means baptism. Sometimes baptism can be... An embarrassing step almost. You're like, I don't want to get up there. I want to do that in front of these people. You don't know where I've come from. You don't know my family background. But baptism is a way that you show people, I have repented of myself and I have given myself fully to the Lord. Now there's a, there's a phrase here that we need to pay attention to in verse 38. So I want to slow down and make sure we we, we deal with this because it can cause a lot of confusion. Verse 38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. There are certain religious groups that that will teach, based on this particular verse, that you have to be baptized in order to receive forgiveness of sins. Because if you look at the wording there, it says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so some people have said... Unless you're baptized in water, your sins haven't really been forgiven. Let's deal with that for just a second. I want it to set in because there, you may have grown up in churches like this. You may have heard arguments like this, and we need, we need to deal with it. Here's the two responses to that. The first response is, at least eight other times in the book of Acts it talks about receiving forgiveness of sins, and in none of those other places does it mention baptism. So you don't see a pattern developing in Acts where every time forgiveness of sins is matched with the person being baptized. In other words, Acts is not laying out this pattern. You have to be baptized in order to receive forgiveness of sins. The other thing is that the language that is going on here when it says you're baptized Uh, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that phrase for the forgiveness of your sins is probably best understood on the basis of or in keeping with the forgiveness of sins. In other words, you're baptized because you know what God has done in your life. God has taken my sins and he's forgiven those sins and and I'm no longer guilty of those sins. And so my baptism, it, it matches What God's doing in my life. My baptism is not what causes the forgiveness of sins. And so we want to be aware of what's going on in this passage. So anytime that God works in our lives, there's an individual response. We're to repent and to be baptized and we receive the power of God's spirit. But there's also a group response. Look down at verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Some serious church growth happening. <laughs> you go from 120 to 3,120. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and at many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together together. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of living in the kingdom of God. If you want to know, what does kingdom living look like? What does it look like to be a part of God's kingdom? Go to Acts 2, 42 through 47 and read this summary of how these early believers were acting, how they were relating to one another. And that will give you the best picture I know of what God's kingdom looks like. And the one thing that jumps out to us is that when you respond to God individually, as we all must do, that individual response always leads to a group response. In other words, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. There's no such thing as private, isolated Christianity. God is always in the business of creating a people who will live together as his people living out his kingdom. And so if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, it always involves this group response. Look back in verse 42. We're really just going to focus our final couple of minutes on verse 42 here as we try to understand what does it look like. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All right, there are kind of four phrases there. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Uh, working through this this week, I think what's happening in this verse, and, I, and I'm about 90% sure, so feel free to take the other 10% and argue with me about that. It's not going to bother me, but I think what's happening is there are really two main ideas, and then the numbers three and four are subpoints for the second idea. In other words, if you want to know what it looks like to live as a Christian, you devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And then when it talks about the breaking of bread and prayer, those are ways that fellowship is meant to happen. And so so I think it's two things, and then Numbers 3 and 4 explain the second. So here's what I mean by that. When the people were brought together and they experienced God's work in their life, they didn't say, oh, now we know everything. Have you ever noticed that the further you go in life, the less you realize that you know. And we all look back at our younger selves and realize, wow, I didn't know as much as I knew, as I thought I knew back, back then. When they came to experience God's work in their life, they didn't say they were finished learning. They said, we are going to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And now we have that teaching in the New Testament. And I, and I would just remind you, just as, a, as an aside, Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, not to Owen's teaching, or not to Charles Stanley's teaching, or not even to his son Andy Stanley's teaching, or whoever your favorite preacher is. You you don't devote yourself to their preaching. You devote yourself to the apostles' teaching that is found in the New Testament. And so we have to be so careful that we don't say, I'm going to follow that teacher. We say, I want to follow God's word. And I want to know what that means. And it's given to us oftentimes through teachers who are put in our lives. But our devotion is always to God's word, not to a particular preacher or not to a particular teacher. And so we give ourselves to God's word. And then it says we also give ourselves to fellowship. Now, that's a good Baptist word. If you've grown up in the... uh, in the Baptist Church, you know that we love fellowship or, or we love fellowships that happen in the fellowship hall as we're fellowshipping over food. That's kind of how it goes. And so uh, we love the word fellowship. The Greek word here is a word that you may have heard before. It's the word koinonia. Koinonia is one of those Greek words that we like to say if we want to feel really spiritual. And, and it's a word that really means sharing. And so if you see the word fellowship, in your, in your English New Testament, fellowship is really the result of what this Greek word means. In other words, fellowship happens as a result of sharing your life with someone. You can't say, "I'm going to go up to that person in fellowship with them." Fellowship is what happens as a result of you caring and spending time with that person. And sharing what you have with them and them sharing with you that life-on-life interaction. That is what produces fellowship. And so what Peter is talking about here and what Luke is giving us in the book of Acts is that these early believers were sharing with one another. Their lives were intertwined with one another. They weren't living for their own good or their own needs. They were caring about others. And you say, well, that's nice. How do you do that? Well, you break bread with them you share meals you share these you share these experiences and you pray with others men husbands all of the research that is out right now says that the divorce rate for couples who pray together is below 1%. That one factor couples who pray together, the divorce rate for the most recent research puts it under 1%. There is something about praying together that intersects our lives, that intertwines our lives, that says, I'm in this with you. We are going to gather together in this way. If you need one thing to take away from this morning, if you are not praying together as a couple, start now. You may feel like me when I was roller skating yesterday and you may feel shaky, you may feel unstable, you may feel awkward when you're starting out praying together because what do I say and how do we do this? Just start. Pray together as a couple. Pray together as a family and we have to pray together as a church. And in that, in that line, I would call you back at six o'clock tonight. We meet regularly at six o'clock on Sunday nights, but we are meeting tonight specifically to pray together as a church. And so we're, we're gonna do that. There's something about praying together that puts us on mission with other people. And on top of praying with other people, spend time with other people. Break bread with other people. Invite someone into your home for a meal. Invite yourself over to someone's house for a meal if you have to. Whatever it takes to share your life with someone, just break bread with them. Just say, I want to spend time. This is how our lives connect. This is how God has created us to be. So all of us this morning have to ask two questions. What does it mean for God to be at work in my life? Why is this happening? What does it mean? And secondly, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to push it aside and say it's irrelevant? Or am I going to say, I'm taking action. If you need to repent, repent. If you need to be baptized, come and tell us. And we will walk with you toward that, to be baptized, to show people you're following Jesus. If you need to pray together with your spouse, do that. If you need to pray together with other believers, start doing that. If you need to go and invite someone to come eat at your house, do that. Whatever God is telling you to do in response to his word, be obedient to it. I'm going to pray for us here in just a second. And we're going to stand and sing a song about worshiping the Lord and the fact that worship is something that we do with our entire lives. I'm going to be down here at the front. If you need to pray, come and pray. We're going to have people up in the balcony. If you're in the balcony, you don't have to come down to the floor. There are going to be people up there to pray with you. Just respond. Repent. Be baptized, pray with others, devote yourselves to the word. Whatever God is calling you to do, be obedient to that.